So a few months ago, it came to that time in the year when you're getting the yard ready uh, to mow the yard every week. But in order to do that, you've got to do the first initial scalping of the yard, uh, which is a great chore that you dread all year long. But it's also a challenge of, am I going to be able to do this in 13 bags this year instead of 14 like last year? Have I developed a system where I'm more efficient um, to move from the bag into the other bag and keep moving so I don't kill the flow and get done as soon as possible. So after this long task, I'm sitting there with 13 <laughs> trash bags full of grass um, that I've got to get to the city dump and I don't have a truck. Um, so last year, we, I figured out a way to how to fit it all in my car uh, and it only took about a month to get the grass out uh, that went all over. And this year, one of my neighbors, as I'm fin finishing up this task, pulls up into our driveway in his truck, and he goes, man, I watched you shove that into your car last year. <laughs> and I thought, that does not need to happen again. <laughs> and he said, I'll take this, I'll take the thing for you. I've got to go anyway. I'll take it for you. Don't worry. I said, well, how about if you help me load it, I'll go with you, and we'll take it together. And he said, sure. And so we go and we take the trash bags to the dump and we have a nice conversation uh, about our jobs and our families and where we went to high school and all those different things. And it was nice um, to have a neighbor help out in a task and really uh, dot that I and cross that T um, and help out there. I found out the next week that this same neighbor who had been so kind to me and so helpful and it paid attention to what I needed, that he and his family, that his wife is fighting a brutal fight against breast cancer. Um, and that it had been brutal, and their oldest child is only five, and they have three children. And they had been fighting this nonstop, and their world was crumbling around them in a lot of different ways. But he was still willing to pay attention. In the midst of all this going on in his life, to pay attention and be a good neighbor and to join in doing something to help other people out. And I knew, I had watched and observed something was going on because they kept having cars at their house and there was a mother-in-law or something that would stay there for an extended part of, period of time. And so I had observed that something was going on, but I hadn't acted like he had acted to, to engage and to help. So in the midst of this struggle, my neighbor showed me what it is to be wise and to have this posture where no matter what's going on in your life, you're still paying attention. And today our text tells us that the wise are those that pay attention, not only to simply observe, but to act in accordance with God for the sake of other people. And fools are those that are consumed with themselves and the foolish do not observe anything except what benefits them. And they are oblivious to what God is up to in the world. And one of the themes of this series as we go through these different stories of David is that we are these wise people and these foolish people all at the same time. That we are both of these things. We are the kind and compassionate neighbor that pays attention. And we're also those that enter into fights with people on the internet and treat them like they're objects. Today we see one of the great heroes of wisdom who calls us, calls us all to the better parts of ourselves 
into the posture that makes us available to be a good neighbor, as well as to be a posture to be available and observe what God is doing and join in that important work. So as we move to our text today, we're in this part of 1 Samuel where Samuel has died, right? And so we are officially into the era of the kings. With all its good and with all its ill, we are now, Israel is now a people of a king who will have a king in any era the former is gone. And we are in the midst in 1 Samuel in this time of a, a games for the throne, right? That David is anointed king, but Saul is, is king and still has the throne and he's afraid of David and he's, he's pursuing David to kill David to take out the threat to his throne. And David's army is on the run and in this section of 1 Samuel chapter 24, 25, and 26, we see examples of that the true king, those that are anointed by God, close to God, are those that avoid unnecessary violence. That their power comes from God and not from their sword. And that those that are close to the heart of God react in a different way than those that don't. So turn with me today to 1 Samuel 25. If you have your Bibles or pull it up, it's, it's 44 verses, it's a great story. I'm not gonna be able to read all of it today. I don't have time, but I would encourage you to. It's one of the great stories in scripture that a lot of people don't always know. So in verse two and three, it says, a certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and 3000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. So early on, we're introduced to Nabal's wealth before we're even introduced into his name. Right? And he's got a thousand goats and three thousand sheep. I don't know how wealthy that is. So I decided I'd call our former preacher, Jonathan Stormont, who moved to Arkansas because I figured there they would know how wealthy this is. Um, and he said, that's just a few thousand goats shy of Walton money. Um, right? But Nabal's name, right, he's mean, he's surly, but his introduction gives us a sense of his values, of who he is. We're led by what he has before we even know his name. But with Abigail, we're introduced to her. First, before anything else, is her intelligence, which this is a unique thing in scripture, right? Most of the time when they talk about women, they don't lead with the intelligence, right? So she is intelligent and beautiful, but this smart and beautiful woman will be God's voice in our story today. And as we move along in the story, David is in the desert, right? He's avoiding Saul and it's, sheep shearing time, right? Where they would shear all the sheep. And this is a big time of profit to celebrate wealth. And there's a big, great festival that goes with this. And so David knows as his men are out on the run and they need provisions, this is a perfect time to go ask the wealthy man, Nabal, for some extras of his provisions to share with his men. And so David coaches his men well, right? To go and to take a certain posture with Nabal to speak peace to him, to speak kindly to him, to act as a servant, 
and to ask kindly for the excess of this festival to come to his men. And so they go, right? And they go to Nabal, they wish peace on Nabal, on his house, on all that he has, right? Shalom to you, Nabal. Shalom to everyone in your house. To Shalom to everything that you have. We pray peace on you. We have been protecting your shepherds while they were out in the fields. You wouldn't have been able to get to this point, to this festival, without the protection that we provided. And so we're asking, can you please share with us? And common sense says that obviously he would give hospitality. These people protected his possessions. They protected his shepherds. And this great time of festival, obviously, he would share with them. He would offer hospitality. But Nabal responds with this. Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and my water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? And in this moment, Nabal teaches us about foolishness, right? His name literally means fool. And this is the kind of foolishness, this is not slapstick comedy or other forms of laughable foolishness. Nabal's a miser, and these kind of fools are mean in a way that hurt other people. Because these people, this foolishness never grows out of saying, mine. The book of Isaiah says that fools like this refuse to give food and drink to those in need. That this kind of foolishness refuses to offer hospitality. And we know that not offering hospitality is bad because it excludes people, right? We feel bad because people are left out. Or we know that it's foolish because you're ignoring the fact that all of this was given to you as a blessing in the first place. So if you're not hospitable, you're acting like all that you have is yours. And we know those are wrong. But this story reminds us that not offering hospitality is more than that, right? It also means that we shut ourselves out from what God is doing in the world. That if we aren't hospitable, we can't see what God is doing. This kind of foolishness means that we focus on ourselves, we miss out on God. And this language that's used here for Nabal is used for Saul and other parts in 1 Samuel. It's used for Eli's son at the beginning of the story of his sons. And all of these characters, because of their selfishness or their own anxiety, have missed out on the story of God. They haven't observed or seen what God is doing. Moses even sings a song in Deuteronomy that says when this kind of foolishness that we see in the ball, when it spreads among an entire people, that they will reject the very rock of their salvation. They will reject God because of their foolishness. Now, one of the servants witnessed this, Nabal being the, the fool that he always is. And so he rushes to Abigail and he tells her what's happened, how the men cared for them out in the fields, how kind they were to them, how they protected them, and how Nabal responded in the foolish ways that defined who he was. Right? And Abigail, the true hero of the story, takes over at this point and she wastes no time, right? She gathers elaborate provisions for David and his men. 
and how quickly Abigail gets all of these provisions together, how organized she is, shows the intelligence that we heard about at the beginning of the story. Right? She, she acts quickly. She has a system. You do not argue with Abigail about the best way to pack a car for a road trip. <laughs> Abigail shows great courage, too, because she goes with the servants and the provisions. She travels with them to go see David out into the area where there are thieves, all the different dangers. It would have been normal just to send the provisions, but she goes with them, right? She even does something David doesn't do to go see Nabal. And she rides towards them into a, a ravine, right? And, and watches David's army of 400 men coming at her. And she stands there in the middle and she goes up to the front of them and she meets David in this place and she falls at the feet and she recognizes, right? Nabal didn't know who is this David, right? The fool doesn't know this is God's anointed. Abigail knows who this is. She knows that God is doing something through David and she falls at his feet and, and tells him things that he needs to know, acknowledges who he is and asks that he not treat them the, the way that he should, right? Because when David heard that Nabal had responded this way, he grabbed his sword and he said, all you men grab your sword. We're going to go get in the ball and not one single man is going to be left alive when we're done with them. And Abigail rushes out with these extravagant gifts and with her wisdom and her courage. And she says this in verse 28. She tells David, please forgive your servant's offense. For the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be, be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of the sling. When the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my master success, remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment. and keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand that which she brought him and said, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. So Abigail goes and she meets David and one of the things she tells him to remind him of the better part of himself, right, is to say that God will take care of your enemies. He will sling them out like from a sling. Abigail reminds David quickly of the Goliath story, right, of when God who delivered him from the paw of the lion and the bear would surely deliver him from the Philistine and he did. That when David trusted in God, trusted in God to fight the battles that God was going to fight and let God be God, 
that was when he was at his best. And Abigail reminds him of that story. She tells him, put away your sword and remember the stones of God. So David grants her request. And in this talk that Abigail gives with David, she doesn't talk about her stuff like Nabal did. She talks about God and what God is doing and what God will do through David and what God is gonna do in the future of Israel. She tells the story of God because she's been paying attention to God and brings David back to himself, to the real power of what it looks like for the anointed one of God. Moving on in verse 36, when Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. Right, so we're, this is contrasted with the true anointed King David that he can't recognize, but at his house, he's throwing the party like he's one. He was in high spirits, he was very drunk. And so she told him nothing until daybreak. Then in the, mor- the morning when the ball was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Abigail tells David to not, to put away your sword, to trust, remember the story of God slinging the stone. Let God take care of what God is gonna take care of. Trust in the Lord. She goes back, she tells the fool what's happening, right? And he is struck dead by the reality of it all and his heart becomes like a stone. The very same word for what David slung at Goliath. So Abigail helps David remember the best part of himself. He grants her peace. He goes back. And in this, God delivers the fool what is coming to him. All right, Abigail's intelligence, courage, and beauty reminds David and us that we always have a choice between the sword or the stone. So after Nabal's death, this story finishes with Abigail becoming available and David inviting her to join him in marriage. And she does that, right? Giving his kingship much needed political connection and wealth that he would need to be the king that she recognized that God was creating him to be. So Abigail, in what I believe to be the longest speech that any woman gives in all of scripture, calls us to make the same choice as David. Are we gonna live a life that's quick to grab the sword or one that's gonna trust the stone, the rock of our salvation? Abigail shows us that choosing the stone over the sword is not passive in any way, right? She acts quickly and efficiently and courageously. She's paying attention, she sees what God is doing and she acts, she joins the work of God. The foolishness of the ball means you miss gratitude for the blessings around you You're distracted and miss what God is up to in the world. You miss opportunities to offer hospitality. And as Moses seeing, it makes us miss our deliverer and the rock of our salvation. We can choose the sword to get back at those that deserve it. We can choose the sword and wage war at home. We can choose the sword and wage war against people through social media platforms, people we may never see face to face. We can choose the sword by always protecting what is ours and making sure that those idiots get what's coming to them. Or we can choose to be people who believe in the rock of our salvation. 
The story of David grows into a tree, a family tree that leads to the life and teaching of Jesus. One who was tempted to choose the sword and said no, and one that shows us a life of foolishness is really the truest of all wisdom. Several years ago, many years ago, the Christian Century wrote a story, told the story of Nathan and Louise. It was an early morning in Tennessee, Macon, Tennessee, and Nathan got up and it was time to let the cat out, and the cat's name was Cat, right? Because why waste a good name on a cat? And so Nathan opens the door and he goes out on the porch and he says, come on, cat, let's go outside. And the cat goes out to the edge of the porch and he immediately arches his back and he stood up firm and he hisses. And Nathan says, what do you see there, cat? And just then a huge man came out from the bushes with a shotgun and he pointed it right at Nathan. And he must have looked like a Goliath coming out of the bushes. And Nathan shouted, Lord, honey, open the door. He's got a gun. So the man pushes Nathan into the house and he motioned for him and Louise, his wife, to get up against the wall. And he says, don't make me kill you. Nathan and Louise immediately knew that he must have been one of the escaped convicts from the local prison in Tennessee. And it turned out that his name was Riley Arsenault and he was from Memphis. And he escaped with three other prisoners just three days ago. Now, Louise is 73 years old. She's a grandmother many times. And she looks at him and says, young man, I'm a Christian and I don't believe in no violence. You put that gun down right now and you sit down. I don't allow violence in my house. So Riley looked, looked at her, like, excuse me? And then he put the gun down and sat on the couch. And he said, lady, I'm so hungry. I haven't eaten in three days. She said, young man, you just sit there. I'll fix you some breakfast. She turned to her husband, she said, Nathan, you better go get him some dry socks. And she went to work. She cooked him bacon and eggs and toast and coffee and milk. She got out her best napkins and she set the table and they all sat down. She took him by the hand and she said, young man, let's give thanks to God that you came here and that you were safe. And Louise prayed. Then she asked him if he'd like to say anything. And he just sat there silent. And she said, well, then just say Jesus wept. So Riley says, Jesus wept and they ate breakfast. <laughs> Later, someone asked her, Louise, why exactly uh, did you have him say Jesus wept? She said, well, I figured he didn't have any church background. And so we needed to start real simple. <laughs> and that was the shortest verse in the Bible that I could think of. Right, so after breakfast, she took Riley again by the hand. She looked him in the eye and she said, young man, I love you and God loves you and God loves us all, every one of us, but especially you. And Jesus died for you because he loves you so much. About that time, they heard the police cars coming, pulling down the drive to their house and Riley went, they're gonna kill me. They're gonna kill me as soon as they see me. And Louise said, no young man, they're not gonna hurt you. You did wrong, but they're not gonna hurt you because God loves you. So Nathan and Louise got on either side of Riley. They lifted him out of his chair and they walked out on the porch. And she said, let me do the talking. <laughs> so they went out on the porch. The police had surrounded the house. Their guns were pointed at Riley. And she said, y'all put those guns away. 
I'm a Christian and I don't let any violence in my house. And so she said, Nathan, take this young man to the car. So they put handcuffs on him and they took him back to prison. Later on, they asked Louise, weren't you afraid? She said, no, Nathan was totally scared, <laughs> but not me because I knew God was with me. I knew that my rock was with me and that God had sent that young man to me for a purpose. And I knew therefore that God would lead me in the right direction. In the years that followed this story, Louise would visit Riley in prison, right? It extended his sentence and she would go see him on a regular basis and share the Jesus story with him that made her so confident and clear in that moment. And a few years after he met them that morning in their kitchen, he was baptized into Jesus. And when Louise would die, one of the people that would stand up and speak at her funeral was Riley Arsenault. Louise remembered her rock of salvation. She was looking for what God was doing. She acted, she brought peace. And today these great and strong women of faith ask us if we will choose the sword or if we will trust in the rock of our salvation. Let's pray. God, we've lifted our voices this morning proclaiming that you are our rock, that you are the deliverer. We pray that you forgive us of the time that our foolishness causes us to lose sight of what you are doing in the world, of what you have done, and of trusting in your great strength. Help us to not be fools like Nabal, ignorant to blessing, thinking that we are a king. And help us to have the foolishness like Louise, who believes you're at work in the world and that you wanna use us to share your peace all over the place. May we be a people not of the sword, but those that stand firmly on the rock of our salvation. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen.